0: Welcome to the FTF Exchange podcast. This is Maureen Lowe, founder and president of FTF. In this podcast series, we speak with industry professionals from leading financial and technology firms in capital markets. We will discuss an array of topics from current events to the latest FinTech updates to human interest stories from time to time. Through these discussions, we strive to foster thought leadership and information sharing, and we certainly welcome comments and feedback for future episodes. If you are interested in participating in one of our podcasts, please reach out to us. Contact info can be found in the notes of this podcast posting. Thanks again for joining us.
1: Thank you for listening to another FTF Exchange podcast. For this conversation, I'm speaking with Andrew Barnett, who is the Chief Product Officer at a new provider for the global securities operations industry, a company called Hub. Hub describes itself as a cloud native platform provider that offers connectivity between trading and relevant data to optimize the operations technology used by investment firms. By doing so, Hub says that it enables data streaming, artificial intelligence based technologies, and automation. So Andrew, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and about how Hub got started? And then we'll dive into the other questions.
2: I'm a quick Kiwi. I've worked in the investments industry um, across the globe for all of my career. Started in private and, and public investment roles and completed my practitioner career, I guess I would call it, as a Chief Data Officer at Legal and General Investment Management. Since then, I've, I've really used these experiences to deliver solutions back to the investments industry. As you said, I'm currently the Chief Product Officer at Hub.
1: Why is Hub focused on on the post-trade side of investment management? What do you see as the the post-trade challenges uh, coming in, in 2024?
2: Yeah, look, probably has to go back to the the founding of Hub and and our partners um, who are S and P, Pimco, Man Group, Microsoft, State Street. You know, there clearly was in discussing the thesis and the strategy around the organization what was a part of the industry that had potentially been undersolved for, or certainly underserved for. And we were seeing a lot of opportunities in that post-trade space. The other key outcome, which is really, really important for us, and, and, and definitely for me, someone who has worked sort of front, middle, and back office as a practitioner, is to really break down those silos between the front, the middle, and back office, that they're different people, different processes, different technologies. And so what we're doing here is delivering a platform with a suite of capabilities that absolutely solves for that post trade space delivering data trade position and analytics solutions but they have to be organizationally wide and beneficial for everyone more eyes on these processes makes it a lot more effective
1: and have you you know encountered uh, some resistance to this are people kind of when they hear the, the that front middle and office as a premise is going away do they how do they react
2: Look, no one's ever reacted overtly negatively to to that phrase. And I, I think a lot of people recognize that it's really important to, to separate that because it's in the mindset of the way that people run change, they um, hire and employ people. So actually, if you're looking at us servicing the post-trade operation space, being able to solve directly for post-trade in a more elegant and efficient way but also enabling the investments, the distributions, the second line, the corporate functions to benefit from that. You know, that's a really compelling story when you're when you're implementing the
1: solution. So quickly, can we, can we talk about what you say is a new ecosystem for client reporting? What do you mean by that? And how can firms move to new operating models that go beyond the, the PDFs, the emails and the spreadsheets?
2: Look, I think the key thing here is new ecosystem is just there needs to be an ability to evolve the solutions and the services that you deliver back to customers. You know, client reporting is is obviously, you know, it's market facing, there are a lot of risks associated with that activity. Historically, you're absolutely right, the approach has been to deliver quite analog and one directional communications to those groups of people. And as we sort of enter into the industry and we start to solve for a lot of the client reporting problems that we're seeing out there actually what becomes really interesting is some some key themes and what are the capabilities that are needed and and some of these they they kind of sound like they're on a hype curve but you know when you actually sort of interview dozens of organizations all of a sudden the hype curve is looking more like table stakes and you know to call out three or four of the key items we're seeing south service is absolutely key, and that self-service via no-code type um, report customization, but also using elements of that conversation AI to interact with that data, to ask questions, because it's not the use case anymore that every month you generate a report and it gets sent out. You've got customers constantly asking, you know, what is my position? What are my trades? Because the market speed and volatility is, is happening that way. We're hearing all about kind of push and pull engagement patterns. So when I talked about that that analog and the more one directional approach to it, in the past is is pushing out the PDFs, the excels, and sending them over uh, emails. What we're now hearing is people want to actually activate and call that data directly. They don't want it pixel perfect at any point in time because they've got broader usability. So being able to expose that data via an API layer or other methods is really, really important as well. Client reporting, it is a data problem, right? So certainly the you know the solution has to be data-driven and that data has to be discoverable. You have to be able to interact with them and it has to be actionable. So again, an extension of that push-pull, we have to allow end users to interact with that data to generate the insights. It's not on Hub or other providers in that space to be able to generate that insight because that is on the investment manager. That's their IP, the USP that they need to work with. Another one we've seen is hyper-personalization of reports. It's really important, right? If we live in the world we live in now, we've got our phones constantly attached to us. We can go onto Netflix, Amazon knows what we want to buy next. And and while we're a little bit ways away from doing this, we can kind of really see the fact that now customers are expecting that hyper-personalization and it shouldn't be constrained by time or by a really heavy kind of manual and technical engagement to get it done. It should be via no code, low code types of capabilities. And then the latter part is, key part of reporting is communication. Key part of communication is collaboration. So having those talks embedded inside of the, the data, the reporting solutions, and, and really importantly, uh, a really well-defined kind of business glossary so that people are they're talking the same language, um, the data is well-defined so that when they look at a report, they can self-service to ensure that they understand that. So that is, Eugene, that kind of new ecosystem. It is almost taking that, that Netflix world that we live in now and making it available in the institutional client reporting space.
1: Right, without, a, without the underlying technology, it would, it would not be possible. Yeah, look, it certainly wouldn't. But look, one of the
2: things I will call out is over the last 10 or 20 years, we've had spikes of innovation of new technologies. And a lot of these technologies could do what I just mentioned, as some of these evolving new table stakes, but either culturally, um, or organisationally, or even from a project funding perspective, they haven't been chosen to be affected. And, and from my perspective, there's a there's a really large, there's a potentially large jump to go from that analog to that new ecosystem. And and that's a bit of a tax from under-investing or under-optimizing those, those operations historically.
1: One of your first customers has had some common client reporting woes. What were they and how did Hub help get control of the situation? And what were the lessons that were learned? I think the key thing there
2: is that this is not specific to our first customers. And I think you know anyone listening to this is who's been on a, on a client facing journey they'll be very very familiar you know with some of the points i'm going to call out now yeah you know, when we look at the industry growth we look at consolidation um, we've got added layers of complexity and customization that that continue to be i guess added to the client reporting operations and it's often being solved by people and process and and that doesn't scale both technically, operationally and financially in the best way possible. And and the other key thing here is there's typically a reluctance to make major changes for fear of disturbing the client. So that's always a major fear there as well. And so, you know, what we did with our initial customer and customers is have that phase of discovery to go and say, look, what are the key problems? What is your target operating model? How do we solve this in an incremental rather than a big bang way? And some of the feedback we're getting straight away, and I I mentioned it before, client reporting, it's a data problem. Uh, Reg reporting is very similar, to be honest, as well. And in my previous lives, you know, as a chief data officer, I have oftentimes bought client reporting, performance reporting, and reg reporting, at least the data elements of it, the core engine work into that data office because of the heavy dependency on data. Another key aspect here was that the target operating model should determine the technology, not the other way around. So in the past, technologies have been purchased, acquired, partners, licensed. And what we've seen is that it kind of solves 80% of the problem, and subsequently 20% is put on a different stack or it's done manually. You know what, with the modern technologies that we've got out there now, Eugene, you just called it up brilliantly before, there is a way to go and say if that's the objective for your target operating model, which is both the people, the global locations, the cost base to get it done, you should be able to solve that with a very modular um, technology suite that is sitting out there as well. And, look, the last pass was hyper-personalization. It's almost becoming table stakes. So we had all of that context as we entrance that implementation phase. We recognize what some of the key benefits are, and some of the benefits are just simply agreeing the short and long-term operating model, you know, it sounds difficult, but it has to be done. The next part of it is rebuilding the trust and the data and to deliver a common tool set across the reporting teams. You know, historically, you've got these disparate teams grabbing data from disparate sources, but actually what they're trying to do is is kind of create a report that's almost identical across all of these different patterns and then push it out to, to their clients and customers. And not having that common approach to data, data lineage, data management, business glossaries, and the tool sets means that there's not always that consistency in how that's being communicated. The next part of it is actually taking that data, taking those tool sets and activating a wider use base inside of the customer. Because these tools are reusable, they're not just for client reporting. There's anyone who wants to interrogate the data to generate insights and create value for the organization as well. And once you've got this, these tools, these data in front of more eyes, you get this phenomenal feedback loop. And as a product person, it scares me, but it excites me. It scares me that it's going to be negative, but it excites me in the point that it gives me this continuous improvement of saying, okay, this needs to be fixed. This needs to be prioritized to get this done. You know, one of the other parts was, was recognizing the lifecycle client reporting. You know, what are the bigger problems? You know, what we're seeing is there's a lot of high-touch, high-volume reporting, very similar to what I said before, individuals manually grabbing data from different locations, stitching reports together and pushing them out via email. So what we do is typically go in and look at that the the high volume and try and turn it into low touch by by giving the confidence around the data given the tool sets, but also making sure it's part of almost a center of excellence around managing that high volume, it shouldn't be hundreds of reporting associates running around, it should be a handful of experts who are aware of the tool sets who can support the customers internally and externally, but also at the same time, they're, they follow an exception-based monitoring, right? They're not just sitting somewhere to get this done.
1: And that's going to be a bit of a revolution for some of these firms. Strangely enough, yes, it, sh- it
2: absolutely should not be. And, and actually, I almost feel like it's, it's not a sufficient business case, but actually it is because the biggest burden there isn't the technology it's the cultural mindset change to go and say, look, I want to change that around. I want to do it this way. I want to be more effective with the way that I communicate to the customers. And, and what we're hearing back is once you get that quick and easy win, you can start to go and say, look, what are the additional table stakes that need to be inside of there? Look, the conversational AI, it is phenomenal, but it has to be done in a very, very smart and effective way. Collaboration, making sure that people can communicate over these different digital channels, and having that full digital breadcrumbing to know someone's asked for something, I've generated a report, it's all connected, so that if anyone ever comes back and asks that question, whether it's a client, it's a regulator, you can go and say, this is how we generated that information and communicate it across to the customer to get it done. But also if you have AI on that platform, Eugene, it starts to give you a feedback loop about what are the common processes? Who are the people that are doing this more effectively? Is there volume, especially when you've got cloud and tokens in that AI space, is there something that you need to consider so that your cost of operation doesn't get out of control? And look, the last point there is just aligning the product roadmaps of the customer to align with the product of the provider if you've chosen to go that way as well. And making that commitment to that partnership is absolutely paramount. We need to break down that that vendor and supplier management kind of term that's kind of from the 1990s, but seems to have persisted all the way through to today.
1: So uh, beyond client reporting, uh, the securities industry, at least in the US, is moving very fast to shorten settlement to trading day plus one, which is also known as T plus one. And they're trying to get there by May of this year. And, and this is that includes North America, not just the US. So what do you think of the T1 push and ultimately uh, the T plus zero situation?
2: i think it's representative to almost every reg that we've looked at over the last 15 years and, and, and eugene has been a lot of them right the probably the the issue i have here is that people looking at t plus one are looking at it as a project typically and they're going to say how do i solve it given the date and and the lens is so narrow and pre-filtered that actually they're not looking at it from an, an operating model principle perspective so, so I think the biggest hurdle here is actually a cultural one. And look, I did it when I was on the other side, implementing Mifid, Amer reporting. I had a budget. These were my people. This was my date. How do I get it done? You know. But the key thing for me is to go and say, how do we build a product mindset inside of financial services firms? And if that's not what the financial services firms are going to do, we need to make sure that when you partner with a provider, that they have a product mindset around how do we build this once? How do we service it once? But how does it solve multiple problems? It could be multiple customers or it could be multiple regulations inside of that organization. So for me, it should be T0 by design. We should be focusing on that. Everything should be event driven. Things should not be batch driven. We shouldn't be waiting for exceptions to jump in our inbox to get that done as well. So that that is a key thing for me, Eugene. It's just getting the principles in place so that when you start to undertake these change, these regulations, these operating models, it is done effectively and synergistically across the organization.
1: And T plus zero, isn't that that's part of your core offering?
2: Is it inherent? I Yeah, look, I, I, I use the term T zero by design because the principles behind the platform is that, you know, data is constantly in motion. The data is streaming, everything is event-driven and those events, you know, they form communication to interested parties that something has or hasn't been done and whether something has to be resolved and whether you need to collaborate via communication channels inside and outside of that organization to perform that as well. So, you know, for me, we should not have to change our technology, our platform, our ways of working around to solve T plus one as it evolves to T zero.
1: So... If I could get some quick comments to a, a list of things that um, I think the industry is grappling with. Uh, first of all, books of records, uh, mm-hmm. iBORs and so forth, um, are these old-school versions uh, still relevant? I, look, I, I think they are. They're, they're
2: absolutely key. They're essential, whether it's an iBOR, an ABOR, a PBOR. My perspective, having sort of sat on the other side a lot longer, is that they're so highly engineered for their specific use case, they don't flex into the more broader solutions that are needed. That's what they were designed for. So to look at that rear vision mirror and be critical of them is probably not fair and not the right thing to do. So maybe to look through that windscreen and look forward a little bit more to go and say, you know, how should you approach a book of records? Now, the book of records for me is something that should be transactional. It should reuse the streaming event-driven approach that you know we just discussed briefly about the T1, T0. And, and once you've done that, actually a book of records then becomes a really dynamic ask for anyone, right? Mm-hmm. And whether you're front, middle, or back office, as much as I dislike the terms, they are still there, I should be able to go and say, based on all the transactions I've ever seen in my ecosystem, I want a view for this fund trade date or settlement date, eyeball view versus able view, tax lot view versus strategy tagged, as was, as is, that that should be easy and it should be simple. But I think the best way to do that is through the greenfield development of a new solution, rather than trying to kind of brutally twist an able into an eyeball, which I think we've seen a number of organizations struggle with.
1: Yeah, Uh, there's been a lot of talk about cloud native and that that's the next step for a lot of uh, a lot of firms. So what are what are the operations advantages of cloud native and and, and what's becoming known as cloud first? Yeah, look,
2: some some of this is marketing, I think broader than ops, it is what are the benefits of being cloud native and look, they're absolutely huge. Um, But there's also some risks And, and some of those benefits are clearly cost efficiencies, given it follows more of a pay as you go model. That adaptability through continuous development. But again, that means that you've got that product mindset in, inside of your organization that's constantly giving a feedback loop and pushing that through the, the product lifecycle. Time to market in cloud, it really is a lot more effective. Fostering innovation. It's so easy to, to create a spike, innovation lab, whatever term you want to use, to go and say, I'm going to create a constrained spike to go and test a new capability Um, It could be open source capability, it could be connection to another provider, it could be AI. So that innovation is really, really important as well. But it's also a great way to future-proof your technology stack. Look, I want to be call out that it has to be tempered with, you know, the consumption-based commercial models around this. You have to be very careful around sort of saying, this is not a free-for-all. You just cannot come in and continue to query data, run analytics, because the cost of CPU ingress, egress, tokens as you go into AI, mm-hmm. you know that can actually end up making that the total cost of ownership change and run a lot higher than you anticipated as well. Look, the other thing I'll say, lifting and shifting operational processes, if we wanna put the lens just on operations, into the cloud will not maximize those benefits. It's really important to look at that operations, look at the context of the technology, technologies, cloud and AI together, and go and say, what should that architecture model, what should that operating model look like? And then make a transition to that more strategic change rather than just lifting and shifting because you won't optimize the outcome of being cloud native.
1: And artificial intelligence, uh, on the one hand, is, is, is there too much hype? Uh, how will it really advance operations? And secondly, um, what do you think of the open source uh, movement uh, for financial services firms?
2: Yeah, look, they're, they're kind of tight, right? There's there's a lot of the AI and the you know large language models are, are open source. Mm-hmm. Good thing, risky thing. Look, AI, I, this is huge. I've spent so many years in operations and, you know, you're expected to be a magician and a mechanic, you know, during the day to, to get the impossible things done. I think if only 20% of the hype is is realised, I think we're in a hugely beneficial place t- to do that as well. So um, I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. Um, I want everyone inside of my organisation to be thinking about it, to understand what it is to get this done. So, you know, for me, I think every organisation needs to consider this. What I would counsel against, which is creating a synthetic AI lab that creates outcomes That are following a happy path that always leads to the outcome that was originally on the hypothesis you know that that's just not real it has to be put against the cold face side of things so put an ai strategy in place get the right sponsorship around it um educate what is and isn't ai really really important you know there is still much easier ways to solve problems with uh, traditional technologies than throwing ai at it get it ethics and privacy policy in place As a provider, you're going to have to have that to respond to any kind of market RFI, RFPs. Um, Understand what your common architectural principles are for maybe training models versus prompt engineering. And actually, they're two very different use cases, and you need to be clever around how you make that decision tree for determining the architecture. And then once you start to have that education, you get the engagement back to this product mindset, Eugene, is create the backlog Score that backlog, prioritize it, and sequence it in against the business benefit that's going to be um, attributed to to the different activity you're performing. And then measure it and implement it with OKRs. And, and maybe just a final point on that with open source. Open source is, is brilliant. It's so different than what it was 10 years ago. People excluding it because it's open source, I think, are constraining both their thinking, their their future-proofing, their architecture some of the previous concerns around probably vulnerabilities licensing ip whether there was actually a roadmap for that open source i think that's going away the network and the connectivity effect by having open source is so so powerful but also you you need to remember that you are then going to potentially use that inside of your stack and you need to remember its potential impact on your contractual position around items like resilience and availability that's, you know, that your support model is aligned with as well. So just just a, a point of consideration. But I think the, the lion's share of the risks and concerns can quite easily be inoculated in the current day.
1: Okay, great. Great. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eugene. Take care.
0: Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the FTF Exchange Podcast. If you would like a turn in the hot seat, reach out to us at info at ftfnews.com and let us know what capital markets topics you'd like to discuss. Also, be sure to sign up to receive our email alert so you don't miss out on listening to future episodes. Just visit ftfnews.com and click the sign up link at the top of the page. Thanks again for listening to the FTF Exchange Podcast.